yourself a glue vine it's winter on monocle 24 and you're listening to winter weekend today we preview the new film 1917 from director sam mendez it's an astonishing look at the first world war and all but certain to dominate the box office this christmas and new year we'll also have our tips for some familiar festive favorites plus dispatches from our team soaking up the sun at art basel miami and what to expect from monocle's christmas market today and tomorrow right here in london London. Snuggle up, your winter weekend starts now. A very warm welcome to Studio One at Midori House. I'm Georgina Godwin coming to you on a special morning here at Monocle because it's our annual Christmas market. We're going to be spending the day at the market with a special programme of festivities. It's still rather early, however, and so we're keeping warm here in Studio One before we venture out into our broadcasting hut right next to the reindeer. I'm joined today by Monocle's Ben Ryland. Ben, have you decorated your Christmas tree yet? Yes, I have. I have. I absolutely have. I've got a real Christmas tree for the second time, only the second time, actually. Uh, I was on that sort of bandwagon, I suppose, where you'd go for the, uh, the, the artificial tree because I suppose you can get quite nice artificial trees these days, but nothing quite beats that feeling of walking into the apartment at the end of the day and getting a big waft of spruce right in your face. So uh, that's what I've done now. <laughs> um, I haven't. And you know what? For the first time, I think I'm not going to. Isn't Georgina, don't yeah. admit that on the radio. We'll get hate mail. <laughs> Although I must admit, you're wearing a rather, uh, a rather festive shade of green today, so you do look almost like a, a, a Christmas, Christmas elf. Tree. Yeah. A Christmas tree. <laughs> I have, in fact, come as a spruce today. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to attach some baubles to you for the, for the rest of the day. I, just, I was just told by Nick, actually, our, our uh, researcher today, that he's had to decorate seven Christmas trees already. So uh, he's probably an expert by now. Perhaps he could give you a few tips. Perhaps of, of how I should accessorise. <laughs> you should accessorise yourself, yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, ben, let's talk about festive films because Christmas always brings about familiar favourites for many people. So what's on your list? I know that 1917, which is a big First World War epic directed by Sam Mendes, uh, is coming out, in fact, in, in time for Christmas in, in the States, but not here in Britain. That's right, and I do think it's a curious sort of release schedule, actually. Uh, it, it does seem as if a lot of film releases these days sort of act as if the internet never happened. So I think, consequently, you're going to have a lot of people reading about the reactions to the film over in the US and wondering, when can I get to see it? And, and the difference between December 25 and January 10, which I believe are the two release dates we're talking about here, is quite significant. Um, but hopefully that doesn't drum out any of the buzz, because I, I managed to go to the world premiere just the other night here in London, and you had Sam Mendes there, uh, the, the entire cast of the film was there, even Charles and Camilla, actually. Um, but <laughs> curiously... Were they in the film? They weren't in the film. <laughs> they weren't in the film. Um, but they did They did manage to pop along to the screening. It's an absolutely spectacular achievement. And I say achievement because this is really something completely different when we talk about filmmaking. Uh, there are a few films over the years that have done this, uh, this sort of, I suppose you could call it a novelty, where the film looks as if it's one long, continuous take. Now, the most famous, I suggest, would be Alfred Hitchcock's suspense thriller Rope, um, that was, of course, none of them are ever one long take, of course, uh, but it, it has that appearance. And, and Hitchcock was sort of um, uh, 
you could say limited by the technology of the time. He, he couldn't really achieve the, the effect he wanted. And consequently, when you watch that film, you can tell where the cuts are. In this film, 1917, Sam Mendes and his, uh, his cinematographer, Roger Deakins, have achieved really something remarkable. You go in there and if you know about the, the con- continuous take thing, well, it's on your mind, obviously. So you're looking, you're looking out for it. Uh, maybe six minutes into it, once the suspense starts, once the story really draws you in, it's completely out of mind, and the effect ends up being this r- ultimately first-person feeling. I've never had anything like it where you actually feel as if you are in the skin of these men who are having to march off to war and really um, embark on this virtually impossible mission and all of the bloodshed that comes with it, and uh, admittedly the thrills and the adventure as well, but none of it is, is gratuitous. All of it just drives home exactly how horrible it must have been, but in such an emotional way. It's a completely different kind of war film. I, I thoroughly recommend that it. it's absolutely going to be up there for best picture. But maybe it's not festive viewing? It might not be festive viewing, but it is emotional viewing. And I, I think that's what I want to get to with some of the other films we'll talk about today, is that you know when we talk about festive films, well, they're not necessarily films about Christmas. I think they need to evoke certain values. And that's where I think 1917 does score very highly, because its values are really straight from the heart. It's all about the emotion. It's all about the, 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 the experience. And, uh, I mean, that's really what's most important, isn't it? Uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. I want to talk about that because it is such a very Christmassy film. Uh, 1944, Judy Garland, of course, and that was where we first heard Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Indeed, indeed. And we'll hear a a bit of that on uh, Arts Weekend coming up a bit later as well. But yes, this is where she introduced that that track. And I can give you a little bit of trivia, actually. Judy Garland arrived on set and saw the lyrics to that song, the original lyrics. And the it was originally meant to say, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. <laughs> and she said to she said to her director and, and crew, uh, we can't possibly sing this. We'll frighten the children. And so she, she managed to arrange for them to be changed. And of course, um, it, now it says, have yourself a merry little Christmas, make, make the Yuletide gay, which I think is a vast improvement. There, there are still different versions of this, though. If you listen to the cover versions by Frank Sinatra and virtually everyone else, they sing different lyrics again to make it even less emotional than it actually is in the film. The reason the song is in the film is because it speaks to the story, that particular moment towards the end of the film, which, of course, we won't spoil. But when we talk about family values in cinema... Nothing, I think, beats Meet Me in St. Louis. It's my absolute favourite Christmas film. What about The Holly and the Ivy? That's a British classic from uh, 1952. Yeah, this is getting a re-release, actually, at the moment. So it's 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 out on Blu-ray uh, right now. It's got a few special features on there as well, with uh, a few uh, film professors being interviewed about the significance of the film. It's a bit of a curiosity. It's it's not a it's not a big sweeping uh, MGM epic the way that uh, Meet Me in St. Louis is. I mean, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis isn't really an epic. Epic, I suppose, but it does have that real uh, MGM lushness to it that, that all of their films had at the height of, of the studio's fame in the 1940s. The Holly and the Ivy is much more quaint. It's set in a small English village and it's an adaptation of a play and its origins as a play really do stand out because virtually all the scenes take place in within a few rooms of a house. And it's basically about a family coming together at Christmas and all of their disagreements and grudges sort of coming to the surface. Uh, and the father happens to be a pastor 
person. And he discovers that his family just sort of dismisses him and protects him in some ways from the truth because they think, well, he's a parson. He won't understand. He's too busy talking to everyone else and wrapped up in his religion books. And he has to come to terms with the fact that his family doesn't, perhaps doesn't really know him. And he, but he, he sort of flips that and counsels his family at the same time. It's a really lovely, warm film. Uh, well worth a revisit. Absolutely. And it's going to be re-released, as you say, on Blu-ray. That's right. It's out on DVD and Blu-ray. It's a restored edition, so it looks absolutely beautiful, crisp and clear. And it's so wonderful to see films, I think, made in England from this particular period. We, they, they're not really seen as often as the American counterparts. Ben, thank you very much indeed. Ben Reiner will be back a little bit later this morning with Arts Weekender, which this week features the actor and writer Simon Callow discussing his work as the biographer Orson Welles. This is Winter Weekend on Monocle 24. It may be the chilly, festive season here in London, but at least some of our colleagues here at Monocle have switched the annual spruce for a palm tree. Art Basel Miami Beach wraps up tomorrow, which means our culture editor, Chiara Romella, will be returning to our shores, but not before she sat down with one of the, the star names at this year's event, Pablo Reynoso. His piece, Still Tree, almost looks like a large tree sprouting branches of aluminium spaghetti. Chiara spoke to Pablo about how the tree fits into Art Basel Miami's catalogue. So we're just outdoors in Collins Park where disruptions are taking place and within kind of view of your work. I wanted to ask you first of all, when you found out that the theme of or or at least that the that the name of the exhibition is disruptions, how does that relate to your practice? Do you think that your work and your practice has the sense of disruption about it? I think yes. In a more in a less histrionic way like we can see here but when you when you see all my uh, what I call my spaghetti benches of course there is a disruption because there is something wrong or different in this way I feel very comfortable with the, the, the title when I start to discuss with Diana and Flor the creators they came up with the name of course but wasn't our m- main preoccupation. We were more busy about the proportion of the work, how it could be stalled, what happened with the wind, etc. So we, we went quickly in more in a technique position and we assumed all together that I was very focused on, on the title. Well, it's interesting, though, that this work is available for everybody to see because we're in a public park. So at an event that can feel so exclusive, like Art Basel Miami Beach often does, because, you know, we're within walking distance of the main fair, but obviously only some people are allowed inside. What does it mean to make public work during a week like this? During the week like this and in general, because as a sculptor, my my preference really go to art in public places because when when you are in public places you are related with the life of the city what does it feel like for an artist to be here what kind of experience do you have in a week like miami art week for me it's fascinating of course i'm not naive and there is a very strong commercial point of view this is the way our still now our civilization is going which is sometimes a good thing and 
sometimes a really bad thing. So all that goes together. And also, and this is personal, for me to be part of our Basel, it's, an, it's a great pleasure. I will say, and I hope it doesn't sound too polite, but I'm honored to be, and I'm conscious of that, and I invest myself in proportion with that. I'm always investing myself a lot with my work. But today, we are many artists talking about environment, and you can take that like a, a fashion way of thinking, but I think it's a contemporary way of uh, thinking. And personally, more I get involved, more I understand my responsibility. But I participate to this movement and I think it's very important. And we don't have more chance to ignore that. Let's talk about the work itself and how this speaks to the work that you're showing here. You started talking about it earlier, how it kind of merges the natural with the artificial and what that means in the context of these ideas that you're discussing. Again, it's something that came little by little. We don't understand what it's about nature or we understand very little. If we see how the world is going, it's like we don't realize very much the interconnection we have. And the interconnection we have with life and health seems to be alive. And this work is turning around that. And, but I have a duty, a personal duty with this story. Because I, when I was very young, my first material to work was wood. I'm talking when I was 14, 13, something like this. For me, the material was a material. A material that permitted me to go ahead with my sculptures or whatever. And now I say, wow, I took the material and I never thought about that, about its nature, about the consequences. So this is why I say it's a little duty I have, because now I realize that uh, if you move a tree, uh, there are consequences. So I understand something and, and I include on my work now. The artist Pablo Reynoso speaking to our culture editor, Chiara Ramella. And finally today, the courtyard here at Midori House is, shall we say, beginning to look a lot like Christmas. There's an army of elves here busy decking our halls for this year's Monocle Christmas Market. So we'll end today's show with a lesson on how to decorate for Christmas from the man who's spent the past 20 years lighting up the window of New York's Bergdorf Goodman department store. For a few years in the 1970s, New York artists would head to Fifth Avenue on a Thursday night to watch the department store windows change. Back then, window display was almost like street theater, with wit and sex taking center stage. Candy Pratt's price turned Bloomingdale's windows into a sadomasochistic scene. Victor Hugo made fashion a pop art, and Robert Curry mastered surprise at the Henry Bendel store. For David Hoey, this is when he fell in love with the art of window dressing. For about two or three years in the mid-70s, there was the bad boy period. These three people and a few other imitators were creating shocking window displays in New York that were all the rage. I mean, uh, smashed chandeliers and like pseudo-sadomasochistic scenes in the windows. And not only was it happening in New York, but, but 
I'm originally from Dallas, Texas, and I remember in the 70s, I was a kind of a precocious junior high school kid that had noticed in the paper there was a big ruckus at a shopping mall in Dallas because a window dresser had crossed a line and had a very um, provocative sort of a scene in the window involving the mannequins. Well, you know, I never forgot that. Today, David, the primary designer, and his boss, Linda Fargo, are the team behind Bergdorf Goodman's display windows. They are part of a handful of people who, essentially, decide what Christmas in New York looks like each year. David says right now, display windows are back. And that's clear on New York's fashionable Fifth Ave. You wear that. Yeah! That's like a Diana outfit. Saks has an annual lights show. Barney's has ice sculptors. But no windows are more indulgent than at Bergdorf Goodman. I would like it, please. I want The world-known department store has turned its five main windows into jewel-encrusted fantastical tableaus. The mannequins wear bespoke couture covered in crystals. And the tourists are impressed. I love this window because it kind of takes me to a place of fantasy and just the sparkles and it's eye-catching. This kind of, to me, starts the holiday season. You know, you got to see the windows. In fact, New York's holiday windows are so iconic that people travel hundreds of miles every year to come look at them. Michelle came today from Philadelphia. Christmas is my favorite holiday, so it means so much to me. When my kids were younger, we came in every year to go to the show and to look at the windows. We actually came in at around 11.30 this morning because we wanted to see the lights glowing in the evening. David explains that a truly successful window isn't about advertising. It's about telling a story. We consider ourselves sort of professional storytellers. We like to pretend as well that we're in show business. Would you like to know what our window philosophy is at Bergdorf Goodman? We do maximalism and we do minimalism, but we don't do mediumism. (laughs) We go to extremes. David is almost obsessive about his craft. Every year, for example, in our holiday windows, we seem to be tackling and mastering or attempting to master a whole new craft every year. We start planning windows, I always say, on January 2nd of each year. (laughs) These windows were nearly a year in the making. David works with all kinds of craftsmen. There are metalworkers, painters, puppeteers, and sculptors. He's got a stable of 20 artists and calls on hundreds more freelancers. Holiday windows, which stay up for seven weeks and take two weeks to install, account for 60% of the department's budget and resources. And this year... That craft contains over 7 million Swarovski crystals. David takes me outside to see the spectacle. Come over here. It's really important to us which windows people see first and which ones they see in between and which ones they see last. It kind of establishes the mood for the rest of the street. What we've got going on in this window, it's supposed to look like a giant, inside of a giant jewelry box. And we've got a queen sitting on a throne, but the throne and everything else in the room has been fiber-coated to look like velvet. Peeking out in the left-hand corner is a tiny, jeweled black mouse wearing a crown. So everything in this window is either a velvet background or a Swarovski-covered object. And we've got a kind of a punked-out queen with a... A lot of people don't notice this telephone coming in from the side, a Swarovski, an old-fashioned Swarovski telephone. The queen has a hotline. 
Also, sitting in front of the queen is the, my favorite prop of the whole year, which is an absurd little um, Chinese crested dog covered in green Swarovski crystals to match the queen's outfit. The little dog even has its own ruff around its neck. <laughs> Hilarious. And the queen is getting noticed. A crowd of people gathers around the windows. Some snap selfies, others line up with their children to get a look. Here, it's shaping up to be a very Merry Christmas. And who doesn't love a good window display? Well, there's plenty of festive fun to be had here at our Monocle Christmas Market in London, which is lighting up this morning here at Midori House in Marylebone. Do join us. For now, though, that's your winter weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Oh, 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 oh,